0: You're listening to In His Name, the story of white evangelicals, the Republican Party, and how they came to support and endorse Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential election. In episode one, I laid out the three major factors that drove white evangelical voters in the primary to choose Donald Trump over a crowded field white Christian nationalism, traditional family values, And racism. Episode 1 focused on the history of white Christian nationalism in America and the founding principle behind this mythology. Episode 2 focused on one specific element of traditional family values that propelled white evangelicals to become more politically active abortion. Maybe you've listened to parts of Episode 2 and said to yourself, Matthew, I hear what you're saying about all of this, but I still don't get how conservative Christians change their views on abortion in such a short period of time. The answer to that leads into the third factor, racism. Robert P. Jones is the CEO and founder of Public Religion Research Institute a nonprofit that conducts research at the intersection of religion and politics. But he also grew up as a white guy in a Southern Baptist church in Mississippi. He opens his book, White Too Long, talking about the challenge I've been facing with much of this podcast. Seeing something you've been so close to your whole life with a new perspective. You know, I write that it wasn't until my 20s when I was in seminary
1: that I really got the straight story that our denomination had been founded in 1845 to make the gospel compatible with owning other human beings based on the color of their skin, and that is uh, enslaving other people. In
0: 1844, Reverend Basil Manley Sr. was the president of the University of Alabama, the former pastor of the First Baptist Church of Charleston in South Carolina, and soon to be the leader of a new group of Baptist ministers. Once every three years, the leaders of the Baptist denomination would gather, and the meeting in 1844 would be a memorable one. Reverend Manley wrote a letter, co-signed by a group of Alabama Baptists, to the convention board declaring they wanted the denomination to support slavery, specifically allowing clergy to own human beings as property. The board provided a blunt rebuttal. Quote, if anyone should offer himself as a missionary, having slaves, and should insist on retaining them as his property, we could not appoint him. One thing is certain, we can never be a party to any arrangement that would imply approbation of slavery. In response, Manley and other Baptist leaders came together in Augusta, Georgia, six months later, and formed the the Southern Baptist Convention. This new group of pro-slavery Baptist ministers and the Confederacy were intertwined. When the SBC met in April of 1861, which was the beginning of the Civil War, their delegates defended the right of the secession and had even adjusted their paperwork to now say the Southern States of North America. These racist and white supremacist actions weren't only a matter of paperwork and nomenclature for the Southern Baptist Convention. According to Jones, theological arguments were being propagated to justify white supremacy. And and by white
1: supremacy, I don't really mean um, the KKK version, but I, I think more generally what I mean there is just the general idea That God intended people who thought of themselves as white to be at the top of the pyramid, right? That they were literally created to be superior and and were superior, you know, to other human beings. So, you know, if that's a commitment of your worldview and you're a Christian, you need a theological justification uh, for that
0: conviction. Enter the theology of the Mark of Cain. In the book of Genesis, the first two humans are Adam and Eve. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain, in a fit of jealousy,
1: kills his brother Abel and then lies about it to God when God confronts him
0: about this event. God, being all-knowing and all-seeing, knows Cain is lying about murdering his brother and decides to discipline Cain.
1: And as a punishment, uh, the, you know, the text says that, that God marks Cain. Now, it doesn't say anything about skin tone or any of that, but what that little passage was seized upon by white uh, theologians to say, aha, like this is the beginning of non-white people in the world, right, was this criminal act.
0: You know, as I listen to you tell that story, it's, it's hard for me to think that people in the Bible— were from, you know, the Middle East. they were they were from, you know, <laughs> Northern Africa. Yeah. Like these people more than likely were not what we would describe as white people. so where where does that where does that divide come from? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from Europeans seizing the story.
0: We begin to see a new Republican strategy following Richard Nixon's loss to John F. Kennedy for president. In 1960. In 1964, the Republican Party nominated Barry Goldwater, a senator from Arizona. Here's Angie Maxwell, the author of The Long Southern Strategy.
2: Goldwater in 1964 actually plays overt racism about the Civil Rights Act. His surrogates really do in the South.
0: Goldwater voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1964 as a senator and believed that desegregation should be a state's rights issue, not something regulated by the federal government. So how did he do in the election?
2: He picks up five southern states and Arizona and loses the rest of the country. So Republicans are like, okay, maybe too hard. In
0: 1968, Richard Nixon is the Republican nominee again. He softens his rhetoric on race, ends up winning over Democratic nominee Hubert Humphrey. But remember those Southern states that Goldwater won with his overtly racist campaign? Four of those states went to George Wallace, former Alabama governor and vocal segregationist. Wallace had previously been a Democrat, but his racist and segregationist policies had been rejected by the party, forcing him to run as a third-party candidate. Georgia native and Democrat Jimmy Carter turns the South blue again in 1976, which sends Republicans to the drawing board once again leading up to the 1980 election. Angie Maxwell again.
2: Can we still play this race card? Is that enough? Or do we need to add something to it?
0: In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that all public schools could no longer be segregated by race following the decision of Brown v. Board of Education. Some states dragged their feet reaching integration, such as some parts of Mississippi, where it took until 1976, a full 22 years after the ruling. Many white families didn't wait for this action to take place in their public schools, though. Across the South, private schools and Christian schools were popping up left and right. In 1969, one such school district in Mississippi led to another court case, Green v. Connolly. Here's Randall Baumer, a professor of religion at Dartmouth College.
3: Now, the background for Green v. Connolly was that in Holmes County, Mississippi, uh, a group of parents got together and they had noticed, first of all, that the number of White students in the first year of desegregation in Holmes County dropped from 771 white students in the public schools to 28 in the first year of desegregation. The second year of desegregation, that number dropped to zero.
0: I want to reiterate those numbers for you one more time. In the first year of desegregation, the enrollment of white students dropped from 771 to 28, and in the second year,
3: there were zero white students. At the same time, there were three church-sponsored segregation academies in Holmes County, Mississippi that were applying to the IRS for tax-exempt status, and this group of parents said, no, this isn't right. So they filed suit to block the IRS from issuing tax-exempt status to these uh, these schools.
0: The argument the parents were making was that under the Civil Rights Act, schools could not be quote-unquote charitable organizations if they participated in racial segregation and discrimination practices. Therefore, these schools, both the private schools and the Christian schools, ought to lose their tax-exempt status. The district court in DC issued a ruling upholding that private schools could not discriminate. And under the Republican president, Richard Nixon, the IRS began to enforce this ruling. One of the schools the IRS sent a letter to was Bob Jones University, a Christian college based in Greenville, South Carolina. Bob Jones Jr., the founder and namesake of the college, argued that racial segregation was mandated in the Bible. He decided to placate the IRS by admitting one black person, a part-time student who worked at the radio station and ended up dropping out a month later. After another letter from the IRS, Jones once again decided to admit black students, but only married ones. On January 19th, 1976, under Republican President Gerald Ford, the IRS removed Bob Jones University's
3: tax-exempt status. Randall Obama again. Uh, as the IRS began to enforce that, that got the attention of people like Jeremy Falwell, who had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia, and other evangelical leaders. And that is what galvanized them into a political movement that eventually became a religious right. It had nothing whatsoever to do with abortion.
0: Robert P. Jones, whose book White Too Long addresses the legacy of white supremacy within white evangelicalism, agrees. You quote Jerry Falwell in your book in back-to-back paragraphs. Uh, The first quote comes from 1965, just a few weeks after Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, where he essentially says, Preachers are not called to be politicians, but to be soul winners. And then in 1976, his tone changes, and he says, quote, the idea that religion and politics don't mix was invented by the devil to keep Christians from running their own country. What changed for Falwell in that time frame of just eleven years?
1: Well, what's remarkable about this is, you know, I think when you hear about Falwell, a lot of people think about abortion or LGBTQ rights, uh, you know, th- those kinds of things. But it's it's the reason I included those is because it's also so clear that what was motivating Falwell in both of those instances was race, right? And and upholding a kind of white supremacist
0: worldview and a segregated society. The lead-up to the 1980 election for Ronald Reagan featured that memorable speech in Dallas, Texas, in a stadium full of white evangelicals. You know... The one where Reagan
3: said, "And so I know that you can't endorse me, but I only brought that up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you are doing." But there was
0: one other memorable speech Reagan gave. Just a few weeks before that, the Neshoba County Fair took place near the small town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, and on August 3rd of 1980, Ronald Reagan gave a relatively short speech, but an impactful one. The audio quality is not great, but here's a portion of that speech.
3: I believe in states' rights. I believe in in people doing as much as they can for themselves at the community level and the private level. And I believe that we've distorted the balance of our government today
0: by giving powers that were never intended in the Constitution to that federal establishment. In case you missed it, Reagan says... I believe in states' rights. I believe in people doing as much as they can for themselves at the community level and at the private level. When Reagan's talking about states' rights here, it's clear what he means. Angie Maxwell again.
2: He's trying to say to these Southerners, I know y'all went back to Carter in blue, but like, I get you, I'm one of you, I'm going to say all the right things, and... You're going to know that I'm not going to, you know, impose more civil rights stuff on you. We're going to move past
0: this. As we heard in episode two, after eight years of Ronald Reagan, white evangelicals were disappointed with his presidency and the lack of movement on their preferred policies. In fact, they tried to run Pat Robertson, a televangelist, but ended up settling for George H.W. Bush because they believed he passed their litmus test. Bill Clinton, a Southern Democrat, is elected in 1992. And things got even more dire for Republicans in 1996, when Bob Dole, a senator from Kansas, was their presidential nominee. Dole was the Senate majority leader and a World War II hero that was highly respected. But he was an economic conservative more than a social conservative. Angie Maxwell.
2: They really just, like, don't know what to make of the Republican Party under a George HW who doesn't say all the things they want and a Bob Dole who like didn't even want to meet with them you know they made him they were like you have to call these folks and you have some of these leaders they need to feel like they have a line to you and he just like really thought that was not okay or just it was giving them too much power, they were asking for things that somebody like Dole was like, that's unconstitutional. Like, we have a separation of church and state. They weren't, like, asking for things he felt like he could do.
0: Bob Dole was interested in what he believed made him a conservative, lowering taxes. He was less interested in the things the moral majority had been pushing with Ronald Reagan.
2: Your true believers that wanted Christianity asserted or prayers back in school or vouchers for private religious schools or faith-based initiatives. You know, they wanted more than that. That's what people like Bob Dole and George H.W. Bush were worried about and were scared that they would be pushed into a place that was really not constitutional.
0: Arguably one of the most influential conservative leaders in the 1990s and early 2000s was Rush Limbaugh. Here's Kristen cobez dumay professor of history at Calvin University.
4: What history shows us is that before Rush Limbaugh came along, conservative evangelicals were championing many of the values that Limbaugh gave voice to.
0: This idea goes back to the fallout from the Scopes trial. Mainstream culture couldn't be trusted. Christians needed their own schools, bookstores, music, and now their own media and news. Limbaugh was crass and painted with a broad brush, but in general, you hear the talking points that white evangelicals can relate to, that institutions and systems are not to blame for racial inequality, but in fact, may be to blame. Limbaugh said the quiet parts out loud. He moved away from dog whistles and picked up a bullhorn instead. He had no interest in political correctness. He would tell it like it is. Here's Limbaugh in 2008 talking about the black community in
3: America. They're acting like they've been left behind. And of course, we've, we've heard that this is because of racism, natural, uh, systemic, institutional racism in America, that we are unfair, that this country is uh,
0: just horrible and, and rotten. Limbaugh goes on to talk about how black children don't have a father in the picture. And the mother is left to raise the kids by herself and
3: that she abuses the government to get help. The mother remained the mother. She got the uh, financial assistance from this legislation from the federal government. The federal government became the father. Father didn't have to hang around in order for the kids to be okay, depending
0: on how you define okay. Kristen kobes Dumay again.
4: The conventions of political correctness gave voice in very harsh and crass ways to some of these values that evangelicals also held. And so I think they admired him for what he could do, for what he would say in a tone that they maybe couldn't get away with saying in their community.
0: Limbaugh's presence was deeply felt during President Bill Clinton's administration. He made offensive jokes about the Clintons' teenage daughter, Chelsea calling her a dog on more than one occasion. He spread the lie that First Lady Hillary Clinton was involved in the death of White House Attorney Vince Foster, a lie that would resurface in 2016 with the help of presidential candidate Donald Trump. But perhaps one way this bombastic and willfully politically incorrect radio personality pulled in white evangelicals was around President Clinton's impeachment. The topic of Clinton's sex life brought together both social conservatives, like the white evangelicals, as well as the economic conservatives around one main enemy, President Clinton. And their band leader was Rush. In 2008, Illinois Senator and Hawaii native Barack Hussein Obama was elected the 44th president of the United States, becoming America's first black president. It didn't take long for rumors and conspiracy theories to start cropping up about him. One that clung to the president pretty tightly questioned whether or not he was born in the United States. The theory came to be known as birtherism, and its leading voice was none other than reality television star Donald Trump.
5: What about this? You recently said about President Obama, I'm going to quote you, he grew up and nobody knew him. Nobody knows who he is until later in his life. The whole thing is very strange. What are you driving at there? Are you a birther, Donald?
3: Let me me just tell you, I was a really good student at the best school. I'm not like a smart guy, okay? They make these birthers into the worst idiots. Why doesn't he show his birth certificate? I, I Why think he probably he have to? Because I have to, and everybody else has to, whoopee. I'm sure Why you can't he show?
0: Trump me, spent that. weeks no, going on television show after television show questioning whether or not President Obama was an American. Gwenda Blair is the author of The Trumps, Three Generations of Builders and a President, and has been writing about Donald Trump for decades. She points out Trump wasn't the creator of this conspiracy. But he saw its promise. He saw
5: there was a constituency for that. He saw that it was a way to appeal to an anti-immigrant sentiment and a racist sentiment without saying so.
0: For Trump, it was about underscoring President Obama's otherness and questioning whether or not the sitting president was born in America. He was questioning his patriotism his dedication to the country, and questioning whether or not he even deserved to be president. Finally, in April of 2011, President Obama addresses the press from the briefing room to clear the air about this conspiracy.
3: As many of you have been briefed, uh, we provided additional information today about uh, the site of my birth.
0: In tandem with the announcement that his long-form birth certificate would be available, the president spent time talking about how this farce of an issue gathered more attention than his latest budget priorities on infrastructure and education spending.
3: During that entire week, the the dominant news story wasn't about these huge monumental choices that we're going to have to make as a nation. It was about my birth certificate. What is the impact
0: for Donald Trump when... Barack Obama has to go into his own press room and present the long form version of his birth certificate. Like what's going through Donald Trump's head when that has to actually happen in, on live television?
5: What can I do next?
0: Gwenda Blair again.
5: What can I push for next? I mean, you know, two seconds of thinking, yes, but then that because that he wasn't he wasn't really after just that birth certificate at all. He was that just a stepping stone. Bullies never stop, you know. They get one thing, they keep pushing. Because it's never enough. And it, it wouldn't be.
0: Liberty University, being run by Jerry Falwell Jr. now, invites Donald Trump to give the commencement speech in 2012. As Falwell introduces Trump, he praises him for forcing Obama to release his birth certificate. Kristen Kobes-Dumay, again of Calvin University, says that the connection to birtherism and the nation's most prominent Christian university should not be all that surprising.
4: Core commitments. Of conservative evangelicals, again, okay, Christian nationalism right at the core, culture wars, politics, the history of racism and uh, segregationism is still a part of the movement. It has not been expunged, certainly not at a place uh, like Liberty, not wholly expunged and not within the broader evangelical movement. Oh, and there's more. <laughs> there's also, you know, post 9 11, this real um, rise in Islamophobia within conservative evangelicalism, again, an embrace of militarism, preemptive violence of the need to attack our enemies as we define them before they attack us.
0: Culture wars, racism, Islamophobia, militarism, all of these factors make Donald Trump the perfect candidate for the commencement speaker at Liberty University. The Republican primary in 2016 was crowded, to say the least. A few candidates might have stood a chance, but Angie Maxwell, who is an expert in Southern politics, was not surprised. When
2: I looked at the field and I thought Kasich is probably, you know, appeals most to traditionally just social conservative religious voters, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't attack on race I look at Rubio and Cruz, and I their last names are Rubio and Cruz. When you've decided to double down on white grievance, it's not that it's going to hit everybody. There's a lot of people that voted for, particularly Cruz, but it's going to shave off just enough. I look at Ben Carson, right? African American, cauliflowerine, female. So you start to go, who is going to get the Christian nationalists, those expressing racial resentment, and kind of the anti feminists? And that combo, is going to get you about 30 percent in the southern states and in a crowded field that's enough
0: looking at the southern super tuesday states in 2016 maxwell is right on the money alabama trump won with 43 percent of the vote arkansas 32.8 georgia 39 tennessee 39 trump never crossed 50 percent in a state primary until the field began to thin by may Trump was the presumptive nominee, and in July of 2016, he accepts the nomination. And in November, 81% of white evangelicals in America voted for Donald Trump. It would take a whole other podcast to talk about the impact of Donald Trump's presidency. With Donald Trump losing re-election to Joe Biden in 2020, We're left to wonder what impact Trump has left on the Republican Party. Daniel Williams, a professor of history at West Georgia University, believes there's a potential for a splintering of the party.
1: Perhaps not a a true split of the party in the sense that a new third party emerges. So that's not entirely impossible. But certainly a time period where the party fractures internally between a group of people who would like to preserve something of the of the Reagan-Bush Republican Party who want the party to once again become the party of business and small government and fiscal conservatism and a much larger coalition that is driven by the populism of Donald Trump.
0: But according to Gwenda Blair, chaos may be a competitive advantage. I think the Republican Party is in a lot of trouble regardless of of who ends up being the nominee.
5: Or is it? Is that when a crowd start a fight, is that the appeal of that kind of self-confidence and certainty and insistence on being a winner and repetition, louder, 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 continuous 24-7 of fake news, stolen election, stop this deal. Those things have a very eroding impact.
0: Whether it's leaning into the culture wars and chaos, or it's splintering and realignment, it seems hard to imagine that the alliance between white evangelicals and the Republican Party will see a significant split. One thing does seem certain at this point, though. They're not interested in reexamining their racist histories or legacies. Looking back on the cultural toolkit from episode one, you may remember this idea that white evangelicals view problems and solutions through the lens of hyper-individualism. In 2019, Southern Baptist Seminary President Al Moeller was asked to address the slaveholding history and financial reparations related to his institution. His response was, quote, We must repent of our own sins. We cannot repent for the dead. That same year, Senator Mitch McConnell had declared that America had basically dealt with the quote-unquote sin of slavery with the election of President Barack Obama. And he dismissed the idea of reparations because, quote, it'd be pretty hard to figure out who to compensate. Once again, we see that white evangelicals believe that institutions and systems of government should not be blamed for the sins of individuals. And we also cannot be expected to repent for the sins of our forefathers. White evangelicals have not indicated they're interested in dealing with the past or taking responsibility for the legacy they've left behind. Did I, Matthew Moore, own slaves? No. But that doesn't mean I'm not the product of generations of beneficial treatment because I come from a long line of white people who have always had the privilege of getting paid for their work or that my ancestors had the privilege of building wealth through owning land and the privilege of being able to pass that wealth down to future generations. I may not be individually responsible for the sins of my forefathers, but I am definitely reaping those benefits today. Robert P. Jones writes in the final chapter of his book, White Too Long, about the idea of reckoning. The etymology of the word has two branches. The Old English branch means to give a full verbal account of something. The Dutch and German branch hint at the idea of economic justice or a fair settling of accounts. Addressing your privilege is uncomfortable and hard. There's a story told in the Gospels where Jesus meets a young rich man on the road. The man knelt before Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus told him to follow the Old Testament commandments. And the rich man responds, I've kept all these things since I was a young boy. Jesus looked at him and then he said, You are lacking one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The man put his head down and walked away with sorrow. He wasn't ready for a reckoning in his life. Al Muller is right in some sense. We can't repent for the dead. But that doesn't mean we have to keep perpetuating the sins of our ancestors. In His Name is created, written, edited, and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Thanks to Rick Stockdale, Dr. Rob Wells, and Dr. Andrew Dowdle for your help and support over the last two years of this project. Thanks to Phil Gorski, Randall Balmer, Daniel Williams, Gwenda Blair, Robert P. Jones, Angie Maxwell, Rob Ryersy, and Kristen Kobes-Dumay for spending time with me in interviews. And of course, thanks to my beloved wife, Emily, for your constant and overwhelming love. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening.